You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Romans 8. So uh, today I think is really special for, for two reasons. One, as Kevin just mentioned, that we're going to be doing baptisms this morning. And, you know, these are some of my favorite Sundays that we have. We get to hear stories of God's transforming grace and love in actual human beings' lives. So you're going to get to witness that and be a part of that this morning, which are just such such special moments in people's lives. So we're going to get to experience that together as a church family. And secondly, we are to the end of our Romans 8 uh, set of sermons. So this is part 16 of Romans 8, and it's the final part of, of that. So, uh, so we are coming to a close uh, in our Romans 8 series. Now, when I've just talked about Romans 8 here recently, one of the ways that I've described what it's felt like to me is that in a lot of ways, God has opened up a vault his vault and said, why don't you come on in and look around? And I feel like Romans 8, especially the first 30 verses, has been an invitation from God to come on inside the vault. And, and God just invited us, why don't you pick up these, these precious promises? We've just seen one gospel promise uh, you know, after another. Why, why don't you come in and see these gospel promises? Why don't you come in and pick them up, feel these gospel promises so that you'll know how sturdy and, and steady these promises are, so that you'll know that you can actually plant your life on these promises and they're going to be steady enough and sure enough to hold you. So the first 30 verses have been that happening, just one after another of these beautiful promises that God is reminding us, here's what you have and here's what you are in Jesus. Now, when you get to verse 31, it's kind of part two of Romans 8. So the first 30 verses are part one. The second nine verses, the last nine verses are part two. And in part two of Romans 8, starting in verse 31, Paul is inviting us now in light of what you have seen, why don't you... You respond to these things. It's almost as if in the last nine verses, God is looking us in the eye as we're inside the vault, just handling these precious promises that he has made to us. And in the last nine verses, you know, God is through Paul saying, now, now be refreshed by these things. Put these promises to use in your life. Bring them to bear on your life. Preach these things to yourself. Stay mindful of these things. And this last nine verses, part two of Romans eight, comes in the form of six questions. And we've just, over the last several weeks, we've been going through these questions. It starts in verse 31. And what shall we say to these things? That's an invitation for Paul to respond to what we have just heard, to put these things to use in our life, to preach these things to, to ourselves, to make sure that our forgetful minds stay mindful of the precious promises of the first 30 verses of Romans eight. So what shall we say to these things? And then Paul, with one question after another, is showing us what it looks like to preach the good news of Jesus to, to ourselves. So in verse 31, he's showing us, what should we say to these things? Paul's in essence saying, let me show you what you can say to these things. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is just preaching these things to himself. He's, he's staying mindful of the promises that God has made to him. Then you get to verse 32, another question. Paul's preaching to himself again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will God the Father, not with God the Son, graciously give us all things? Then you get to verses 33 and 34. He's again just preaching what he's already covered in the first 30 verses to himself. He says, who, who is there to bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? That is the truth of verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now he's preaching it to himself. Who's in light of that? Who's gonna bring any charge against God's elect? Who is gonna condemn God's sons and daughters? And basically he says, no one, for it's God who justifies. It's, it's Christ Jesus who has done all of this work. He lived perfectly. He died. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. So how in the world is anyone gonna successfully bring a charge against God's elect? It's impossible. Then you get to this last question, question six, and it comes in verse 35. Paul's preaching it again to himself. He's, he's, he's rehearsing these precious promises of the gospel to himself. In verse 35, it comes in the form of this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, what a great question to ponder. Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? He, his answer comes in the next three and a half verses. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will those actually separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, God, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, here's his answer to the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I'm not just kind of certain about it. I'm not just like wishy-washy on it. I'm not, you know, it might happen. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I wanna spend just a few uh, moments pointing out a few things about the love of God that we see in this passage, a few things that we see about the love of God. Number one, first thing we see here, Paul's primary point is to say this, God loves his people. God really does love his people. Like if you're in the category of God's people, God really does love you. Paul's trying to convince us of this, that we really are loved by God, that God really does love us. Paul's trying to show us that. Now, why do we need to hear that? Remember, Paul is using pastoral logic. He's not just writing to, you know, to, to theoretical people maybe that are somewhere out there. He's writing to particular people who are struggling with particular things. And when I think about pastoral ministry, I've been in pastoral ministry on a uh, kind of full-time sort of level for about a decade and a half, for about 15 years. It is no stretch to say that the most common problem I run up against in just walking beside people and really even seeing my own life at heart, but in walking beside people, that the most prevalent problem I come up against is the person struggling to believe that God actually loves them. I think it is the most prevalent problem there is in the Christian life, just struggling to believe, does God really love me? M most people live under a perceived sense that God is just like constantly frowning at them. This is the way most of us kind of live our life with God, that, that God is surely not very pleased with me, surely doesn't like me very much. And like some of that is understandable. When I think about my own life, here's what I am acutely aware of often, my own sin and my own shortcomings. And when we're looking at our own sin and shortcomings, it is really easy then to look back at God and say, there's just no way God could love me in light of these things. There's just no way God could do that. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son after he has just sinned on a varsity level? 
right? I mean, he has gone headlong into it. He's on his way home. And do you remember the script that he is rehearsing? It goes something like this. In light of this sin and shortcoming, there's no way my, my you know, kind of status as a beloved son of God, you know, son of God, a beloved son of my father. There's no way that's still intact. So in light of that being gone, here's what I'm gonna tell my dad. I'm just gonna look at him and say, man, I know I've blown it on this level, but would you just like hire me and treat me as like one of your servants, one of your slaves? Will you just do that for me? And, and I am convinced that that is how most of us perceive God. Uh, one commentator calls what the prodigal son is doing there. He calls it the prodigal suspicion. The prodigal son knows that he has blown it and he's looking back at his, God, at his father after he's blown it and the father is representative of God in that parable and he's got this suspicion toward his dad. There's just no way in light of what I've done that my dad is gonna accept me and love me like he used to. And that is like, welcome to our world. We are carrying this prodigal suspicion. The last thing to dawn on a son and daughter of God is that God would actually love them even after they've blown it. Even after they've blown it for the 10,000th time. It is the last thing to dawn on us. We carry around this prodigal suspicion that says there's just no way God could, could really look at me and, and feel about me like I'm his beloved son or daughter. There's just no way. Now that suspicion in our life, that has devastating consequences. Listen to Dan uh, Kruver uh, describe this. He says it this way in his book, Reclaiming Adoption. He says, few things hinder action within the Christian life more than being unsure of God's love for us personally. Now hear that. That's, that is massively important for you to understand. Few things hinder action within the Christian life more than being unsure of God's love for us personally. When we are unsure of God's love for us, it stifles our Christian life. It blocks so much of what God wants to do in us and through us when we're just unsure of God's love for us. Now, on the other hand, when we are sure of God's love for us, it fortifies us against a million sorts of sins and temptations in our life. Listen to one um, guy comment on that. He said, Certain, uh, certainty in the love of God is how the gospel makes heroes out of ordinary sinners. Now, say on that for a minute. The certainty in the love of God, like God really does love me, is how God takes ordinary sinners like you and me and makes us heroic Christians. Heroic in the sense that we can confess our sin without a sense of wanting to cover it. Heroic in the sense that we can risk everything for the name and sake of God. Certainty in the love of God is how God does that in us. And the primary thing Paul is wanting to convince us of in these four or five verses is that God really does love us and that we can take that to the bank. We can be certain upon that. So here's the first thing we learn in this passage. God really does love his people. Here's the second thing we love in this passage. God's love doesn't spare us from hardship. God's love doesn't spare us from hardship. Here is the way most people think. It, and this is one of the reasons we oftentimes don't feel loved by God. We oftentimes think like this. This is the normal kind of paradigm we operate in. We're looking at our life and all of these hardships and sufferings that are happening. And we say something like this. If God loved me, these surely would not be happening in my life. If you, if, if you just pay attention to your heart, you have probably caught yourself saying things like that to God often. If God loved me, there's no way these things would be happening. Well, verse, verses 35 and 36 are written to show us that those things can happen 
and us still be loved by God. Look at what he says in verses 35 and 36. And this is just, you know, we could go to many places in the Bible to see this work itself out. But he says in verses 35 and 36, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, does those things being present in our life, and listen, they were present in Paul's life. Paul had all of those things happening in his life. And he's asking the question, do those things in my life, do, do those things signal that God doesn't love me? His answer is no to that. Then you go on to verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting um, Psalms 44 here. And Paul is saying in this, he's just, he's just giving his experience. Here's what's happening to us. We are being led to the slaughter like sheep. We're being killed because we love Jesus, right? In, in one sense, Paul is normalizing a life being cut down early, like a sheep led to the slaughter, not because of just a random reason, but because they are loving Jesus. He's normalizing that. He's saying this is what normal Christianity looks like. And I think that is such a good word for us in our culture who have, um, who have over the last several hundred years received so many benefits because we are Christians who are for the first time in our particular culture beginning to, to like suffer because we are Christians. Like, like the benefits have left and the suffering is starting to, to be ushered in. And take it out of our culture for a moment and just put it in the global context. We are living in a world right now where, um, and just think about ISIS. Like I've just had these pictures in my mind over the last few weeks of them lining up just a row of people. And the reason they're lined up in a row is because they're all Christians and them beheading these men and women. Now, Paul is asking the question, does that mean that God doesn't love them if that's happening? And Paul's answer is no to that. He's giving us a new paradigm to look through to say that's not true. That the fact that they're suffering persecution, the fact that Paul is suffering because he's a Christian doesn't mean that God doesn't love him. Paul's point here is to say, you can be suffering all sorts of hardships and all of those hardships that you're suffering for that to be enveloped in the framework of God loves that human being. God loves you and your suffering. Paul's showing us here that, that just because God loves us doesn't mean that we are spared from hardship. Now, here's the last thing we learn. Point three. God's love doesn't spare us from hardship, but here's what God's love does for us. It does something better for us than, than, than sparing us from temporal hardship. Here's what God's love does for us. God's love will, and you can take that will to the, brink, uh, to the bank. God's love will bring us safely home to Jesus. That's what you can take to the bank. This is what God's love will do for us. It does not spare us from home hardship, but it will bring us safely home to Jesus. You can take this to the bank. God's love for you will continually for the rest of your life make you more like Jesus and it will bring you safely home to Jesus where you'll get to experience Jesus from, for all eternity. That is what God's love will do for us. Now, I just wanna read verses 38 and 39 again. And I want to invite you to enjoy these two verses. Just ask the Lord to convince you that these two things are true. These two verses are really true. Just ask God to convince you of that. Verse 38, listen to what Paul says. He's showing us here, God's love is unbreakable. It is going to bring us safely home to Jesus. Verse 38, for I am sure, this is certainty to Paul. He's not wishy-washy on this. It's not a maybe, but might not. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Paul is being as inclusive as he can to say, any experience you can have as a human being, it counts here. Just throw it in. Anything you want to add to it, just go ahead and throw it in. He is saying that, that for I am sure that neither death nor life, just listen to the inclusiveness of this, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is how certain the love of God is for you. This is how rock solid it is. Paul is saying that the love of God is unbreakable. There's many things trying to break it, but it's unbreakable. The love of God is undefeatable in our life. There's many things trying to defeat it, but it's undefeatable. He, Paul is, Paul's point here is to say, it doesn't matter what hell tries to do to you. It doesn't matter what Satan tries to do to you. It doesn't matter what the sin of others does to you. It doesn't matter what your sin does to you. The love of God is going to deliver you safely home to Jesus. That's Paul's point. It's unbreakable. It is that certain and that rock solid. I love what one commentator says on this passage. He says it like this. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He just asked the question, do you see what he's doing? Here's what he's doing, he says. He wants us to see all of the enemies swirling around us. Just take a look at all of the enemies he's saying. Anything that could come against God's rock solid love for you. He says, take a look at all of it. Paul is inviting us to consider all of those things. Paul wants us to imagine the worst case scenario. You die tomorrow because you love Jesus. Somebody breaks into your house and you die solely because you have a, a love and desire for Jesus. He's saying, imagine the worst case scenario. He wants us to ask the tough questions to see then if the love of God remains credible even in those tough questions. He, and, and Paul, he says, even admits, yes, life does beat us up. If you have lived for any time in a fallen world, you know that's true, isn't it? Life in a fallen world can be hard. He goes on, we get bloodied along the way during life in a fallen world. But he says, and this is his summation of what Paul is saying, but in it all, there is a love that will not let us go. That's what Paul's showing us. That when we're bloodied and we're lying on the floor, beat down after just life in a fallen world happens to us, Paul is reminding us there is a love that will not let you go or me go in the midst of that. There is a love that, that undergirds our life, that keeps our life steady, that even when you wanna let go of God, it keeps hold of you. Paul's reminding you that there is a love of God that is unbreakable, undefeatable, that will one day deliver you safely home to Jesus forever. Now, here's what I love about mornings like this. We not only get to see that love of God written on a page, we not only get to see that love of God like heard in a sermon as it's trying to make sense of what's written on a page, on baptism Sundays, we get to see that, that love of God displayed in lives. We get to see it come to life in the stories of people in mornings like this. So we're gonna get to enjoy the rescuing and redeeming, unbreakable, undefeatable love of God displayed through stories and baptisms. Let me just kind of describe how this works here. Um, we're about to hear six, the stories of six people. Four of them were baptized in the first hour. Two of them will be baptized in this hour, but you're gonna get to hear all of their stories. And let me just remind you that you're seeing really two stories unfold as you see each baptism play out. First of all, you're seeing this, this story. God saves sinners. Aren't we grateful for that? 
God saves sinners. But you're not just getting to see that story, you're getting to see this story also. You're getting to see that God saves sinners through ordinary people like you and me. We've asked each person being baptized to, to select and kind of pick out the person, one of the people who have been influential in this moment coming about, like the, the moment of God rescuing and redeeming them. One person has been influential in that. So they're gonna get to do the baptizing. I just wanna throw this out there to all of us. I'm praying that our next baptism service, that you would be one of those people that have been influential in someone else being baptized, you know, uh, being rescued by the Lord. And that you'd be getting to do some baptizing work this next go around. So we're praying for that for you. So first of all, uh, we have six people. Second of all, uh, there's two stories being told. And thirdly, and lastly, um, baptisms are a moment where God invites us to celebrate with him. So I just wanna free you up for you to know celebration should be a thing that we're doing as we're watching stories of God's grace in people's lives. So with that said, I'm gonna pray for us and for these people being baptized and then we're gonna get to experience that together. Father, we love you. And Father, we are grateful for stories like we're about to hear. And Father, I pray that this morning you would encourage our hearts through these stories. It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. All right, what an exciting time together. As you just heard, there's six stories total. We're gonna to end with two baptisms this hour. And just wanna encourage you as a church family through a couple of things. If the people who get into the water are people that you know, either as a friend or family, or you're a part of their home group, or you're a part of their small group, then uh, you have the opportunity to, we encourage you to stand uh, in their honor when they're in the water. And when they come up out of the water, we just wanna encourage the entire church together to just let there be a joyous uproar of the work that God has accomplished in their hearts. So with that being said, let's, uh, let's celebrate together. Hi, my name is Jackson, and I am in the fifth grade. All my life, I've been taking things as a joke. I go to church, joke. I go to school, joke. I go to church camp, joke. Today, I stand here and, I, and say that I don't want my whole life to be based on Jackson the jokester. I want my life to be based off of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. I realized that I wanted to be Jackson who loves Jesus. This is when I began to create a deep bond with God. I now choose to rely on God because he created me. He loves me and chose to send his son to take my place on the cross. If I am struggling with absolutely anything, then I will ask God to help me. I will praise him forever until I die, but I will love him even longer. God has my life planned out, so I have nothing to fear because God is here. Every year at Carolina Creek, I've been getting more focused. In the past years, I was just full-out jokester, but this year I was more focused and just screaming at the top of my lungs, singing praises to him. I would normally be daydreaming, talking with friends, or drawing in my book. WPA has also been helping me see need for change in my relationship with God and helping me be more focused on God. I'm so grateful that God gave me a great church. Now my book broke. Blood brothers and sisters are not my only family. It's the church as well. Rodney is a great preacher. Jeff Garner is a great preacher, and I am excited to be in youth with him next year. Everyone in this church is my family in Christ. God put me in this church for a reason. I love everyone in this church. 
I am so thankful for the family that God has has me with at Stonegate. Frank and Andre have been awesome kids, kids camp leaders. They have shown me God by loving me and caring about me. I am very thankful for Mark and Lauren Cahoon for all of the time that they spend with me and all of the kids in Camp Stonegate. I will always remember these people as being part of leading me to Christ. I also want to thank my dad and stepmom for loving me and taking care of me. I'm so I am so thankful to my mom and dad for teaching me and showing me how Christ, who Christ is every day and teaching and for teaching me about God and how to grow closer to God, to Him daily. This is just the beginning of my journey and story, and I am proud to stand here today and tell my family that I have accepted Christ in my heart. I am so happy to be part of a church that will help me in my walk daily. Thank you, God. Thank you, Stonegate. Today, I stand here forgiven. Hi, I am Bailey Fletcher, and I'm in the seventh grade. I come from a Christian home, but I never really understood what it meant to give my heart to God until January 18, 2016. After that day, the Lord has been working in my heart as I continue to get to know Him. He has also been putting trials in my life. Some of my close friends have been denying God and running away from Him, and this has been really hard for me, but God is telling me to let go of that worry and that only He can bring about the change in someone's heart. The verse that has helped me through this is Romans 8, 31 through 39. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And today I'm getting baptized because God has saved me and brought me into his family. Hey y'all, my name is Elizabeth Griesinger and I'm in 10th grade. I grew up in a Christian home surrounded by people who love God with all their hearts. I was also in junior Bible quiz for about six years, so I've always had the right Bible answer. I had always said I knew Jesus and he was mine, but it never was true in my heart. I thought I gave my heart to him, but only because it was expected of me. You could say I had an emotional experience. I was living this lie until last summer. I had everyone believing my heart, God had my heart, but it was fake. I, gave, I had gave the Bible answer and smiled and acted like everything was fine, but inside I was confused because I didn't understand what it meant to truly follow Jesus. This last summer in Glorieta, New Mexico, at our student uh, ministry summer camp, God won my heart and life. From the first night, he was moving in my heart, and I'm not going to lie, I fought it. I fought it because I was scared to lose control, and I've always had control in my life over every little thing. But this was something I needed to give up, and I'm so glad I did. It felt so amazing to put my trust in him, but it was also scary at the same time. It was during worship on the second night when I finally trusted God with my life. In that moment, God was telling me, I have to trust that he's forgiven me and that I need to forgive others who have harmed me. 
I know I d didn't need to worry because he had me in his hands and he always has. I still struggle with worrying, but God is still working on me. After I gave my life to him, I was uncontrollably shaking. You can ask Megan, Danny, or Christina. And there was definitely many, many tears spilled. It was the best decision I've ever made. Without Jesus and what he did on the cross, I would never have been able to forgive myself or others. Without him, I wouldn't know what to do when heartache comes. It's crazy to think that he would give up his life for me, an imperfect person, a sinner. That he would die for me because he loves me even when I turn away from him. And that, my friends, is amazing. Hi, my name is Sarah Lang, and I grew up in a loving family. I mean, no family or person is perfect, but my childhood was pretty normal. We wouldn't go to church all the time, but I didn't see that as a problem. We prayed at meals. We thanked God for wonderful things that came our way. I never experienced loss or great sadness as a child, so I never turned to him. Fast forward into an adult. I have the love of my life. We get married and onto our wonderful life. Loss finally struck me, and it was a big one. My father-in-law died unexpectedly. I was crushed. He was like my father, too. That was a hard time. I was lost. I was crying one day at school. By the way, this was my first year of teaching. And I called my mentor teacher, Robin Meyer. We talked for a long time. And we talked about many things. Things that I thought I knew, but discovered I was only scratching the surface. I started attending her church, and it felt wonderful. I was saved. I knew at that point, God was a part of me. I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart. We also dedicated my oldest daughter at the same time. Time passes on and life goes on. I started missing more and more. I eventually stopped attending. I had another child at Annabelle and make that my excuse for not going. Well, Lauren Cahoon and I worked together. We were talking about my story. She invites me to Stonegate and I find every reason to not go. God wasn't giving up on me. He brings Dina Tidmore into my path who also worked with me, and we started talking. She also invited me to come to Stonegate. I finally decide enough is enough and just see what happens. And you know what? I fell in, Lord, fell in love with the Lord. Every time I went, I felt him speaking to me through Rodney's words. Every time I came, I felt the Spirit speaking to me through everything, through the excitement of people worshiping, through the people who had no idea who I was but still introduced themselves to, to me or hugged me. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who kept me coming back while I was giving into the Lord. The All In series is where I could see the difference in me. I was coming weekly and even started the home group search. Here I am today. I'm attending my church. I go and live life with my home group. I read the Bible, y'all, and I prayed with intention. So my story isn't about sadness. It's about an awakening. I'm not dead. I'm alive because of Jesus. Thank you. Hi, my name is Katie Herrera, and I'm in the seventh grade. I'm being baptized today because the because Jesus has saved me. What Jesus means to me is that if everyone else fails me, he will never fail me because he's in control of everything on this earth. I was once a dirty rag, and I felt like I had to be flawless, perfect, and sinless like everyone else seemed to be. It seemed everyone I knew, their hair was, their hair was always perfect, and they had everything together. They wore cute clothes and seemed to always say and do the right things. So I thought I had to be like them. If I could be like them, then God would love me. When we would go shopping, I'd always get something that I thought was safe for school, and I tried to act like I had everything together. But being perfect is not who I was meant to be. I was meant to be a follower of Jesus. This means even when I'm not perfect, I know that he is, and that's good enough for me. I can be sitting in a dark tunnel, and he would be my light. 
I know that he's there and that he will never leave my side. As it says in Galatians 1.10, am I not trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So now that I am new, the Lord has really changed my heart in many ways. He has shown me how to love others when they don't love me, how to be patient with others, and how to show grace even when others don't show me any. What being a Christian means to me is to trust God who loves me for who I am. And because of his love, I should be showing loving, caring, and graceful to people without feeling like I have to be perfect. I now realize the only person I should be a reflection of is Jesus. Today, I'm getting baptized because I've decided to follow him. Hi, my name is Carly Robbins and I'm in the sixth grade. Before Christ, my family was literally falling apart. My brother and I were always arguing and I was never doing what my parents told me to do. I was really whiny and selfish. I bullied people at school and got bullied myself. I was losing friendships and pushing away relationships with others. The only times I prayed were at weddings and funerals. Sometimes I didn't even pray then. My parents started going to church. They soon got saved. Christ changed my life through my mom's friend who went to Watermark. Watermark was my first church to ever go to. At first, I didn't understand why we were going to church and having to read our Bibles. My parents read the Bible to me a lot. I started asking questions and getting answers. Soon, I understood the Bible and read my free time. A couple of years after we started Watermark, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. My life is much better than before. Now I stand up for Christ. I really dig into the Bible and find verses that catch my eye. I know that mean words won't hurt me and that God fights my battles. My brother and I argue way less. No one can ever take away my salvation. Why don't we pray together? And we're just going to take a moment to pray for these, uh, these six that today got baptized. And I'm going to invite you to do that with me. So I'll just give you a second there where you are to pray for them and ask the Lord to bless them and to be at work in them. So, Father, we pray that you would bless them. And, Lord, as we saw the living kind of proof of your rescuing and redeeming love on display today, God, we are grateful that you don't just rescue us and then it's over. Or you don't rescue us and then we can get ourselves into such a big ditch that you can't get us back out of it tomorrow. Um, But, Lord, your, your love is unbreakable. And then it's an undefeatable love. And God, we're so grateful for that. And we're praying that your love in their life would be felt. Father, we're praying that your love in their life would be a rock solid reality that their life would be planted on. And Father, we pray out of that group of people that were just baptized, there would be future missionaries and future pastors and future moms and dads who love you with just such a deep affection. Father, we're praying that there would be singles who would Um, be raised up out of that crew that would just risk it all for your name and for your sake to get the good news of Jesus out. And so, oh God, would you take them and would you do wonderful things in their life? 
God, I pray that they would live in the identity of a branch and God, that you would be the vine that energizes and that enables them to live in such a way where much fruit would be born in their life. Father, I pray that they would really believe that for the rest of their life, apart from you, they can do nothing. And so, oh God, we're just praying for the power of your spirit to be on display at work in them in some beautiful, beautiful ways. And God, help us be a church family that would foster and come around and to encourage them to become all that you have designed them to be. So Father, help them and help us in that. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna finish up with one last thing out of Romans 8. You know, like in, in a sense, Romans 8, we saw the love of God on a page. In baptisms, we're seeing the love of God in the lives of people, um, seeing it displayed in that sort of a way. And now in, uh, in Romans 8, you know, I, I think it just ends, like the last two verses just prod this question of at the end of the day, if we want to experience the love of God, where would we go to experience that? How do we receive that sort of love from God? And the last two verses answer it. For I am sure that Paul says nothing, just the whole human experience, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And then he tells us where that love of God is. In Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's where you find the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if there's a fourth thing we learn about the love of God, it's that God's personal love is only for those who are in Christ. That's where the personal love of God is. It's in Christ. You know, it's interesting to see how in superficial ways, we love to categorize people. There are rich and there are poor. There are Democrats and there are Republicans. There are white and there are black and there are Hispanics. There's educated and there's uneducated. All of those, the Bible says, are superficial. They're all superficial. The Bible is showing us here that in, in the final analysis of things, that there are only two categories that really matter, two categories that will kind of stand the test of time. And that's the category of being in Christ and being outside of Christ. And if we get that category wrong, it really doesn't matter what else we get right in our life. If we are outside of Christ, it means that for all eternity, we are going to be outside of the personal and particular love of God. If we are inside of Christ, it means that for all eternity, we are going to enjoy the personal and particular love of God. We're gonna enjoy it for all of eternity. We're gonna be with Jesus where human flourishing reaches what it's supposed to be, where all that you've been designed to be by God comes about. That, that's for those who are in Christ. So, you know, I think Romans 8 really ends with an invitation. Do you want that personal and particular love of God? Or do you wanna keep that love of God at a distance? Do you wanna keep stiff arming that love of God? I, I love how one of my friends summarizes the good news of Jesus. He says it this way, we're all idiots, that's the humbling part. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus and anyone can get in on this. And that anyone is an invitation. That is an invitation from God who is standing with arms wide open where he says, if you want me, you can have me. If you want the personal and particular love that will stabilize your life, that will make ordinary sinners heroic. If you want that, you can come and get that. Anyone can get it. And, and, you know, in essence, the good news of Jesus makes this offer to human beings. God comes to us and says, would you be so humble as to hold up your sin and to give me your sin? W would you be willing to do that? Would you, would you, 
Would you give me your shortcomings? Would you give me your failures? Would you give me your sin? And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God the Father holds up a perfect record of righteousness and says, if you'll, if you'll give me that sin, here's what I'll give you in return. I'll give you in return the perfection of Jesus. Would you be willing to make that trade? Would you be willing to give me your sin so that I can give you the perfection of my beloved son so that from now until all eternity, when I look at you, I will no longer see sinner, but I will see my beloved son. Would you be willing to make that trade? That is the offer of the gospel. It doesn't get better than that. And that's what's open and available for you today. Anyone who wants in on that incredibly bright future in Jesus can have it today. So let's pray together. Do you want in on that love? Do you want in on that unbreakable love that promises to get you safely home to Jesus? If so, it takes a decisive move in your life and in my life. And this is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. It takes a turning from all the sin that we think disqualifies us and all the good things that we think actually earn us things before God, that we think qualifies us before God. It takes us turning from all of those things, and then this is, that's repentance, and then this is faith, and throwing our life on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's how we get in on the incredibly bright future. And if you want that today, we're inviting you to do that, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, to throw your life upon him. And if you do, God stands ready and willing to save you today, rescue you today, redeem you today. And if that's you, if you'll take that card under your seat, fill that card out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus, man, we would love to celebrate that with you today. And for the rest of us in the room, Romans 8, if you want to put it under a heading, here is the main point of Romans 8 to convince you that God really does love you. The point of Romans 8 is to leave you in the same position it left Paul. For I am sure that nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I just wonder if you're suspicious of that today. Just wonder if you're wishy-washy on that today. In light of all of your sin and shortcomings, I just wonder if you've convinced yourself that there's just no way God could really delight in me. He might tolerate me, but there's no way he could really love me. And if that's you, just even there where you are, Ask the Holy Spirit to convince you that God loves loving you. He loves loving you. He doesn't just tolerate you. You're not just a peripheral part of his family. He loves you like he loves his beloved son, Jesus. So, oh God, would you convince us of that today? 
God, would you press that deep into our bones today? God, where we carry the prodigal's suspicion. Father, I pray all suspicion would be removed and we would leave with certainty in its place. God, we would leave actually convinced and assured today of your unbreakable love that promises to deliver us safely home to Jesus. So, oh God, whatever you have to do today to pound that in, God, would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.